Malachi 2. I think we've already seen in Malachi that people in his day had a self-righteous attitude about many things. They somehow thought of themselves as deserving better than the Lord was giving them. And uh, they wondered, and and we're going to see in verse 17, they wondered why there was such injustice in the world. Why all the evil in the world? Why are these people getting rid of, uh, are these evildoers getting away with evil in the world? Why is this happening? Uh, They saw themselves, uh, this is other people who were evil, not them, of course. They weren't the evil ones. Other people were evil. So they were asking this. They even got to the place where they thought that God himself must be the real culprit in all this. He's He's the one at fault, ultimately, in this whole thing. So they thought that God must be endorsing evil. That's how corrupt their thinking had become. Kind of sounds like something today, doesn't it? In our time. Tonight we're going to consider the accusation, two thoughts tonight. The the accusation the people leveled against God and then how the Lord answers them. First of all, notice the people's accusation. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. They say, it says here, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or you also say, where is the God of justice? Now, throughout this book, we've seen again and again Israel questioning God, questioning the goodness of God to them, and at the the same time defending their own self-righteousness. Of course, he had been good to them. Uh, Again and again had he shown his faithfulness and goodness towards them, but they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see it, so they questioned his goodness and as we saw at the beginning of Malachi, the first thing they question is his love. It's in the opening chapter, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord says, I have loved you, Israel. But instead of Israel acknowledging that as a fact that God is, truly did love them, instead of them acknowledging the truth of his word, this is the word of God to them, they, quite, they respond by saying, how have you loved us? You say you love us, how have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord says to the priests who are offering defective sacrifices, uh, sacrifices that are blind or lame or sick or these kind of things, he says, you have despised my name. And then just like children who talk back to their parents, that's how they act in in these chapters, the priests say to the Lord, how have we despised your name? That's their answer to God. Can you imagine answering back to God like this? One time. In chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says he will no longer accept their offerings because of how they're doing things, how they're going about their worship, the manner in which they're going about their worship, their careless attitude, their irreverential attitude. In verse 14, they say, uh, for what reason? What what have we done wrong? There's self-righteous attitude. Again, like children who do not respect their parents. They just can't submit themselves to God. They don't do that. They won't just repent. They don't automatically say, yes, Lord, we're sinful. You're righteous. We'll do what you say. We'll turn from our evil thoughts about you. We'll turn from our evil practices and we'll do what you want. They don't say any of that at all. Instead, they continue to question God throughout this book. Chapter 2, verse 17, it happens again. The Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, the things you're saying, yet you say, another question for God again, how have we wearied him? How have we wearied you? What, what have we said that's, that's inaccurate? What have we said that's theologically wrong? Have we said something that's wrong? What is it? Now, the word wearied is used twice here. refers to someone who's physically exhausted. 
because he's laboring hard, strenuous labor. He's working hard, and so he got to the point of complete exhaustion. In fact, in effect, the Lord says to the people, you people are wearing me out with, with your words, with your theology, basically. You're wearing me out. You're wearing me down. My patience is growing thin with you. Now, can the Lord, uh, can, can the Lord actually reach the, reach the point of physical exhaustion? Is that possible? Can he become weary? I mean, after all, there's a big world he governs, right? They say that the toughest job in the world is that of the President of the United States. I don't doubt that at all. But can you imagine what it would be like to have the job of being sovereign over all creation? That worries me just thinking about it. So does the Lord get physically drained? Does he get mentally drained in, in this life because of all that he does? Well, I like the answer of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 and following. It says there, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? He never gets weary or tired. He goes on to say, in fact, he himself gives strength to the weary. Even young men are going to stumble, but God never does. God never gets tired. God never gets weary. The Lord is a source of inexhaustible, uh, a resource of inexhaustible uh, or, uh, he's, he, of energy, he never needs a rest, he never needs a vacation, he never takes a break, he doesn't need all those things that we need, he doesn't need to sleep, none of that. And so, this is used in a sense of a metaphor, the fact that he's getting weary with what they're saying. It's a word picture, it's a way that, uh, to say that people are telling God what they're telling God is really getting old. It's unnecessary, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, it's blasphemous even. What are they, why are they saying this? What are they saying? Well, there's two statements, both of them theological statements. Did you know that people make theological statements all the time? Even unsaved people make theological statements all the time. If you think, if you think through it, they do it all the time. Now, those statements that are made by people may or may, may not be accurate. It depends. People say a lot of things about God. Some things that we say are purely a product of our own sinful minds. It just comes out of our mind, comes out of our experience, our background, what we've been through which may be very minor, probably is. And so we say something based on maybe even one circumstance about God. And so how do we know with what we're saying about the Lord, whether it's distorted and blasphemous or whether it's true or not? How do we know? Well, here's the answer. Does it agree with the Word of God, with what the Scriptures say? Does it line up with what the Scriptures say? Does it line up with what the doctrines of the Word of God? And that's how we can tell whether statements that are made are correct or not. And these, the statements these, two, these people made, these two statements, they, these people fail the test because what they said about God is pure heresy. Look at statement number one in chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, they say this, first of all, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Is that a true statement? It sounds like something somebody would say today. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. God delights in evildoers. Now, the people who are saying this, if you think through this, they obviously see themselves as having a higher standard of holiness than God himself does to say such a statement. Apparently, they looked out in their lives and their circumstances and in their world, and they figured with all the evil going on, God obviously is doing nothing about it at all. He's doing nothing about it. In fact, he must approve of this because he's doing nothing about it. In fact, he must take delight in evil people and evildoers. You know, this is a new low they've achieved in their understanding of God. Now, how can anybody ever think that God condones evil? How, could, how can anybody ever come to that conclusion, that he approves of evil, that he approves of evildoers? 
That's beyond comprehension, especially when you consider what the whole Scripture says about God and His holiness, right? The whole Bible is a witness to the fact that God is nothing but holy. Uh, you take, at the beginning of, of creation, Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, and immediately in Genesis 3, God starts dispensing judgment, announcing judgment upon them. Why? They had sinned against His holiness, that's why. He didn't approve of that. Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every uh, thought of the, and even in the intentions of his heart was only evil continually, and it grieved the Lord that he had made man. So grieved was he with his man's sin that he decided to blot out the people who were on the planet that he had created. That's hardly a God who's uh, happy with evil, who approves of evil. In Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, the prophet said, when he saw the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, and Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For why? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I see, Isaiah said, I saw God. He's the king. He's ho- the holy one. And I was ruined. I felt ruined because of it. Habakkuk said of the Lord, you, you Lord, are, you are pure eyes than to behold evil. Are pure eyes than to behold evil. Now, how could the God who is of pure eyes than to behold evil look with, upon evil and evildoers with favor? How is that even possible? Even when the Son of God, Jesus, was put on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, God's wrath was being poured out on his Son for sin, and God had to forsake his own Son in that time. That just shows us God hates sin. He hates sin and evil far beyond what we can even imagine. Can't even begin to imagine. The hatred God has for sin. We can't imagine it because we don't hate sin like he does. Nowhere near it. So what a foolish statement for the people to make. Who are they to stand in the judgment of God's holiness? And then look at the statement number 2 in verse 17. They said, where is the God of justice? <clears throat> you ever heard anybody say that? Where's the God of justice? As they looked upon their circumstances and they felt like they'd been mistreated. They had been through the Babylonian captivity, but that was their own doing. And they, had, and they were back in the land, but things weren't as great as they thought they were going to be. There was a rebuilt temple, but it wasn't as glorious as the first one. And they were under the dominion of Persia, a foreign power, and things weren't going like they wanted it to go. And they just felt like God could do a better job of managing the world than he was doing. And so they, here's their conclusion. Well, God's not just. We conclude that God is not just. He's not treating us the way we feel that we should be treated. And again, their theology is unbiblical, totally wrong and sinful, evil. They're not questioning the existence of God here. They are questioning his character, the integrity of his character. They're saying God is not all that we, he's, we thought he was. And this is the same God who set the standard for justice in the Old Testament. He told the judges of Israel in Deuteronomy 16, 19, You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. He set the standard for justice right there early on. Proverbs 17, 15 says, To justify the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to God. Hardly a God who would take delight in evil or evildoers. So why, why then would he delight in evil? Well, he, he wouldn't, of course. Now, what does God take delight in? He delights in the truth. It says in the scripture in Psalm 51.8. He delights in obedience to his word, Isaiah 56.4. He, 
He delights in justice being carried out, Micah 6, 8. And on and on. He delights in things that are good and godly and, and God-honoring and righteous. This accusation uh, of the people shows that they feel like the Lord wasn't living up to their standard. They had a standard that they felt was higher than, than God's. This is all twisted, all perverted reasoning. You can pick this out when people are talking to you, by the way. Wendell was talking to me about someone he witnessed to. You can pick these kind of things out about what do they really think about God when, they're, when you're talking to them and they say all these statements to you. They're giving you their view of God. The people are always questioning God's ways. They're always questioning his character. They're, they cast doubt on his promises. Aren't they always doing this? They impugn his faithfulness. They malign his integrity. Well, we, you know, you say, well, you're preaching to the choir tonight. Well, you know, have you ever had a thought of God that was that maybe he was unjust, that maybe his, the way he's running this world is not the way you think it should be run, that maybe things aren't going the way you think they should, not, should, should go, that maybe God's not really worthy of our reverence. Have you ever thought those kind of things? Be careful of entertaining thoughts of God that are not reverential, that are not worthy of him, that are not glorifying to him. Be careful of making statements that are degrading to God, that aren't lining up with the scripture, that cast, cast out upon the person of God that cast doubt upon his holiness. But the people here were doing just the opposite. They were accusing God unjustly. And then look at the Lord's answer. That's the people's accusation. Look at the Lord's answer in, verses, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. It says there, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, the Lord says. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present the Lord's offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, the people have thrown down the gauntlet in, in chapter 2, verse 17. They said, God approves of evil. He approves of evildoers. Where is this God of justice at? And so now the Lord is going to answer this accusation. Now, unfortunately, there is a... Uh, chapter division created at the wrong place, as, ha- as happen, happens at times in the Scripture. Not by, this is, by the way, the chapter divisions are not inspired of God. You know this, right? Chapter and verse divisions were not inspired of God. Somebody did that later on in the 13th century or somewhere around then. It depends on whose view you take on that. They decided to divide the Bible up and make it easier for you to find verses in the Scripture. Think about this for a minute. If you didn't have chapter and verse divisions, how would you find something? How would you find Malachi 3.1? If I said turn to Jeremiah something, we're going to be somewhere in Jeremiah, you'd say, where are we at? <laughs> so they came up with these chapter divisions. Now, they're not always perfect. <laughs> Sometimes there's a break where there shouldn't be, and here there is. Chapter 2, verse 17 continues on through chapter 3, verse 5. Some say verse 6. It should continue on. So ignore the chapter division. We'll continue on with the context. How will the Lord answer these charges that he approves of evil, that he approves of evildoers, that he's not a God of justice? Well, he's going to come to the world one day in person. And nobody's going to say anything then. They're not going to answer a question of his character then. 
In fact, there's going to be two comings we're going to look at here. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the announcement made is made that the Lord himself will come to the earth. Now, this section, we're going to look at the Lord's forerunner, the Lord's coming, the Lord's refining, and the Lord's judgment. First of all, the Lord's forerunner, in verses, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. In verse 1, we have a reference, another reference to the word messenger. The first time we saw that was in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go back there for a second. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Say, where's the reference to messenger at? The word Malachi means my messenger. God's messenger. Malachi is the prophet of the Lord. He's the messenger of the Lord. Now we have another messenger. You see this word appearing every once in a while in this book. Actually, there's three persons in verse 1, by the way. There is the Lord of hosts, who's at the end of the verse. It says at the end of the verse, the Lord of hosts. He's also the one who says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Then there's the Lord's messenger, called my messenger here. And then there's another messenger, a third one, a second messenger, the, the messenger of the covenant. I want to confuse you here because, trust me, people will do all they can to confuse you on this verse, okay? First of all, we're going to deal with the Lord's messenger, the first one, the, for, the forerunner. The messenger has a job to do. It says in verse chapter 3, verse 1, I'm going to send my messenger. That's who I'm talking about right now. He will clear the way before me. Messenger had a job to do. He's going to clear the way before me, it says. Now, there was a custom in ancient times. When a king came to a place, was going to go to a place, visit a city, or for some reason, he had messengers who went before him. They would inform the people of the king's coming, and they would clear the way. If there was obstacles in the road, if the road wasn't what it should be, uh, if it, they'd make it passable, a way for the king to get by. Any obstacles would be removed so that to make it passable for the king so he could get through, they remove all the obstacles in the way. That's what they did. And the messenger is going to announce in advance that the king is coming. He's coming. Let's get ready for him. Let's clear the way. All the obstacles, move them out of the way, and let's go. Get the, get the king to the, the destin, his destiny. Now, Isaiah 40, verse 3, makes this, a reference to this as well. It says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. In other words, make the road level. The king is coming. We need to make it so he can go through here. Now, this is the messenger he's talking about. Now, I know you already know who this is, right? Who is this he's talking about? That's right, John the Baptist. New Testament readers already know this. Look at chapter, uh, Mark uh, verse, chapter 1 for me, with me, if you would. Go to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verse 1, it says there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And right away, we have a quote from Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with cam camel's hair, <clears throat> and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. After he was preaching and saying, and, and he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. 
I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is preparing the way for Jesus before Jesus comes on the scene. That was his job. It was assigned to him. It was prophesied in Malachi. It was prophesied in Isaiah. How did he prepare the way for Jesus? How did he remove obstacles? He preached the baptism of repentance. That's what he did. He told people, repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. And that was not an intellectual decision or an emotional decision. That's not all it was with him. Mike talks about repentance all the time. And one of the things we say here is this. If you want to know if a, true, a person is truly repentant, look at his life. Is there a change in his life? And that's, it's more than just an intellectual decision or a, a, a decision you make publicly. Your life must change. How do I know this? Matthew 3, 7, talking about John the Baptist, says that when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want to see, you, you say you're going to repent. Is that why you came here? Show me that you repented by, by changing, by your life being different. And so John prepared the way for Christ. He pre- prepared the way in a spiritual sense. He preached the message of repentance. Christ is coming. The king is coming. Get ready for him. Repent of your sins. He said, he is, there, there's one coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. This is the one that we're looking to. This is the Messiah. He always pointed to the Messiah, Jesus. His whole ministry was pointing to Christ. Now, he had a unique ministry, never to be repeated. He's the one prophesied here in Malachi 3, but the message has been the same ever since. The message that John preached is the same one we preach. We point people to Christ, don't we? We tell them to repent of their sin. We tell them that he alone is worthy of, uh, of, of being the Savior. We tell them that, that Christ alone is the only one that can save from sin. The Bible's always pointing to Christ. Always. It's always about him. John said he had to decrease. Christ had to increase. John was backing off the stage of human history, and Christ was coming on the stage of human history. And, and John said, this is who it's all about, Christ. It's all about him. Now, John was only the messenger, and he knew it too. And that's all we are. We're only the messenger. And, and what John did before Christ, we do after Christ. We still proclaim the message of the gospel. We're always to give the focus where it's always been, and that is on Christ. That's the Lord's forerunner. And then look at the Lord's coming, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 1. Again, notice, by the way, that the one who is coming is giving, given two titles here. He's called the Lord, and he's also called the messenger of the covenant. First, the one who's coming is the Lord. Now, it's interesting in the Old Testament that is unashamedly monotheistic. In other words, there's only one God. That this, rever- this verse reveals two persons of the Godhead in this verse. There's the Lord of hosts who is speaking at the end of the verse, it says, and the Lord who is coming one day. The Lord of hosts at the end of the verse, that's technically Yahweh of hosts. That's Yahweh, the very end of the verse. In the middle of the verse, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. That, that word in Hebrew is Adonai, actually Adon there, but it's Adonai, it's the, it's the Lord. And so here in this passage, you have an Old Testament passage on the deity of the Messiah in one verse here. And when the, Lord, when the word Adonai, uh, or Lord, is used in the singular as it is here, and there's a definite article placed before it, there is no doubt it's talking about the divine Lord. It's always that way. Adonai is given is the title given to the Messiah in Psalm 110. So the word, the word Lord has to do with ownership. 
He's the sovereign Lord, owner of all. He owns everything. You know, he's, he's in charge of the world. It's his world. He's the Lord of it. We're talking about the Messiah here right now. And he's called here Lord by Yahweh of hosts. He's called, Yahweh calls this other one that was coming the Lord, the sovereign one. Now you say, well, shouldn't it, shouldn't it bother some people like Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ? Some people, Christians, get all crazy about that, and they wonder, some Jehovah's Witness shows them a verse, and they all think, oh, no, Christ is not God. Does it, they say they don't believe in the deity of Christ. Should that bother us? No, because Yahweh believes in the deity of Christ. And he says it right here. He's also called the messenger of the covenant. Now, a particular covenant is not specified here. But as one writer said, he would be sealing that covenant that God made with Abraham, promising vindication to God's people and blessing to all nations of the earth. And all those covenants have, a, have that thought through it. The, the, the previous description of the Lord has to do with his divinity, his deity. The description messenger of the covenant has to do with the prophetic role that Christ will play, just like John the Baptist played a prophetic role. The message that Christ gives will be with, be with authority. It's a prophetic message and it's an authoritative message. In John 7, 46, the people heard Jesus and they said, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. No one's ever spoken like this. He spoke with authority. His message was from God. That's why he spoke with authority. Did you know the people of Malachi's time were looking for a Messiah, supposedly? It says there, the Lord whom you seek, this Adonai whom you seek, this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, those words could be uttered sarcastically. It's hard to tell, but what, let's take them at face value. These people were supposedly seeking the Messiah. They're anticipating the coming one. They delighted that he would come one day and set things right in the world. That's what they wanted. They were complaining that things weren't right in the world. The world's full of evil. Even God was approving of evil. Well, maybe this Messiah will come and set things right. Now, isn't this ironic here? The same word in 2.17 for delight, where it says that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and God delights in them, is the same word used here in chapter 3, verse 1. In the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. The people were saying, we delight to see the Messiah. We can't wait till he comes. He's going to set things right. However, this Yahweh, well, he's not a God of justice. He's a God who approves of evil and sin. Those, those, what's wrong with that picture? Those two statements are incompatible. They, they don't go together. How can you delight in the Messiah and say he's going to put your trust in him while you're slamming the character of Yahweh? How can that be? And so it's all twisted, a twisted view of God, of God. You can't have it both ways. Either you believe the Lord's who he says he is and you trust him or you don't, one of the two. And God's not there to meet our expectations either, by the way. As a lot of preachers nowadays are putting expectations upon God for them to meet their expectations, him to meet their expectations. But the Lord places expectations on us, not the other way around. Don't forget that. The promise to Malachi, in Malachi was before New Testament times, it was that the Messiah is coming. It says, behold, he is coming. He's coming to his temple. That's interesting because in, go back to chapter 1, verse 10. The priests had defiled the temple. Remember they had offered sacrifices in an unworthy manner. And in chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord says this, <clears throat> Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that, he might, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. He says, shut the temple. Shut it down. You guys are wasting my time. You're unrighteous in what you're doing. 
And yet it says here the Lord's going to come back to a temple in the future one day. In the day of the Lord. Here's a question. In verse 1, is it referring to Christ's first coming or second coming? If it seems confusing to you, it's because it's referring to both comings. Back to back. Both Christ's first coming and second coming are mentioned and they're tied up in these verses. This is one of those times that we talk about in the Old Testament where the prophets prophesied and they saw the two peaks of the mountains. They put out there, but yet they didn't see the valley between the two mountains, the time interval between. Malachi prophesied of the two comings of Christ back to back. He didn't see the, the interval in between. At least I don't think he saw it. And so and there's two comings mentioned here. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me, the first coming. And then the Lord whom you seek, second coming, will come back to his temple and, and there's going to be judgment and there's going to be refinement and things of this nature. And in both comings, the element of judgment is stressed here in both comings. That's often said, we often hear that Christ came the first time for salvation, the second time he's coming for judgment. And that's true. But, but it's also true that he came the first time for salvation and judgment, and the second time for judgment. And as I say, the first coming here is seen in the first part of the verse, I'm going to send my messenger, he'll clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Christ. We looked at that already. And the message of Christ, as I said, was not only salvation, but judgment. In John 9, 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I am coming to this world. That's his first coming. So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. In other words, the Pharisees thought they had spiritual vision. They thought they could see, and Christ said, no, you're spiritually blind. You can't see. And, he, and, and they refused to admit it, and Christ said, I'm going to judge you. That judgment began in the first coming of Christ. Whenever the truth of the gospel is preached and people reject Christ, that judgment's already begun. John 3:18. Who he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, it says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that process of judgment is going to be consummated in the second coming. Now, the, the rest of verse 1 through 5 refers to the second coming. Verse 1 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly. That does not mean immediately. It means unexpectedly. It means almost surprisingly. People are going to be uh, not expect it to happen. They're going to be surprised by it. Now, every time that word is used in the Old Testament, except for one time, it's associated with judgment and with disaster. <clears throat> you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 refers to this time, the day of the Lord, this day it's coming in the future. It says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night for the unbelievers. While they say, or they're saying peace and safety, <clears throat> destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He's speaking of the day of the Lord here, that second coming. Look at Malachi 2.2. 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? I tell you what, people who say that they delight in the, in, in the Lord, and that the Lord, but yet the Lord delights in evil, they've got much to fear in the day of the Lord. It's going to be a, a great day, of dreadful day of judgment for them. People in the Presbyterian Church USA who voted recently to allow gay marriage in their congregation, those people are going to answer to God for that. And all these kind of things that go on, people that, that claim Christ and yet they're preaching a different gospel, they're going to answer to God for these things in the day of the Lord. God's not going to let them get away with that. It's going to be a dreadful day for them, a horrible day. And you look at the references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it speaks of horrible judgment again and again. 
But the true believer can rejoice because he's not under that judgment. He knows Christ. But those who have rejected Christ, that's not a day you want to wish for. You don't want to be saying, well, I want the Messiah to come when you're saying also, Yahweh is approving of evil. You don't want to be saying that. These are the Lord's comings. And then look at the Lord's purifying in verses 2 to 4. His purifying. He's going to be like, in verse 2, he's going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present offerings in righteousness, it says here. It's going to be time of purifying as well as judgment. He uses those two metaphors here, refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Refiner's fire is a reference to silversmiths and goldsmiths and how they looked at metal and how they determined the purity of metals. And then the, the soap is, is used to cleanse people of, of the filth that's on them. Those two metaphors speak of the Lord's purifying work. It's pointing to that. The Lord will cleanse his people in a future day from defilement and sin. Who, who will he purify? I know this gets tough through here. It says the sons of Levi. It says the day is coming when the Levites will be purified so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness something they were not doing in Malachi's day. We see in chapter 1, they're not doing this. They're presenting right offerings in unrighteousness. They're doing it all wrong. They're not pleasing God. And God says, the day's coming when I'm going to purify the sons of Levi. And they're going to do it right. Just like they did back in the good old days in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, in the former years. Just like they did it under the time of David. Just like they did it in certain times in their history when they were doing things right, they're going to, one day in the future, in that second coming, they're going to do things right again. We're talking about Israel in the millennial period. The priests in Malachi were not pure when they were offering righteous sacrifices, but one day, a day is coming when they will do that the right way. Now, we're talking about purifying the sons of Levi, purifying God's people. Isn't that where the Lord starts? He starts with his people. He starts with his people, 1 Peter 4.17. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, begins with us first, the household of God, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In that text, he's talking about purifying believers, purging believers through suffering. It's going to happen. Sometimes the Lord may use suffering to purify you in your life, or me in my life. Maybe he'll use various forms of suffering. Only God knows. We can't predict all these things. Only God knows what he's going to bring us through. And he does that to purify his people so that we'll glorify him. In John 15, Jesus compares the believers to a branches on a tree, and he says every branch that bears fruit, what does he do? He prunes it so that it may, it may bear more fruit. Wow. I mean, you, you're, 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 working for, you're living for the Lord, you're serving the Lord, and the Lord brings you through something, some trial or something to purify you and prune you to make you more God-glorifying. And to produce more fruit, that's what it says in John 15. Those are a difficult process God brings his people through, but it's necessary because it brings God greater glory. And this is the work he will do also on the day of the Lord. And then finally, look at the Lord's judgment in verse 5. The Lord's judgment. He says, I'll draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, those who turn aside, the alien 
and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming, we don't know when. It's going to be a day of purifying, but it's also going to be a time for judgment as well, which is why we need to take heed to what Mike said this morning about preaching the gospel to people. Judgment's coming. He's going to judge people, and he even lists the people he's going to judge. He says he's going to judge the sorcerers. That's anybody involved in witchcraft, incantations, the occult, anything, uh, black magic, anything like that at all. He's going to judge those people, it says. He's going to judge adulterers, anybody that's immoral. He's going to judge those who swear falsely. In other words, people that swear that a lie is the truth. He's going to judge those people, it says. Those who oppress the less fortunate. In other words, he's going to judge those people. People who don't pay workers for their labor. People who are mistreating widows and orphans. People who are withholding justice from foreigners. He's going to judge those people, it says. And and he wraps it up at the end by saying, those who don't fear me. All that list of people before mentioned, none of them feared God. No fear of God before their eyes. It's going to be a horrible day. When I was reading this list, I was thinking of Revelation 21.8, which is a similar list. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a dreadful day it's going to be. Day of judgment. A horrible day, a day of horrors. And so in, that, in the day of the Lord, there are going to be believers who are going to be purified, and they will be there, those who refuse the Lord in the millennium period, and those who refuse the Lord and are judged. Isn't it better to belong to the Lord and be refined than to be cast into the lake of fire and, be, and face the judgment of God? And so they ask the question in verse 17, where is the God of justice? Well, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's still God. He's still the same God he's always been. He's never changed. He's still the God of justice. He doesn't endorse evil. He never has. He does not approve of evildoers. One day, evildoers will face his judgment. Ultimately, they're not going to get away with it. If they look like they're getting away with it right now, they're not going to get away with it. Ultimately, God will judge evildoers. That's how it's going to be. And he's going to carry out a sovereign plan. Our job is not to question how the God of the universe runs his, his, his world. It's not our job. Our job is not to cast doubt on his holy character. That's not our job either. We only have one job. It's not to answer back to God like the little children that disrespect their parents as these people were doing in Malachi's day. Our job is to submit to the Lord. It's very simple. Our job is to submit to his authority. Our job is to worship him in righteousness. That's what we're here to do. And we can profess to have a high character of God, a high view of God, rather, with our mouths, and we can affirm the statement of faith in our, uh, that we have in our church, which talks about a high view of God. We've talked about this already in Malachi. We can affirm that with our mouths. But as we have seen in Malachi already, we have to show a high view of God with our lives, right? In order for it to be real, we've got to show it with our lives. So as we close in prayer tonight, let's pray that God will keep us on the, focus on the truth of who he is and not base our understanding of God on circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word again tonight and the truth that it contains. We pray that we'll take it seriously. We pray that we will uh, make sure, Lord, that we have thoughts of you that are reverent and holy, Lord. First of all, that we'll have a heart that loves you and serves you and wants to to adore you and, and honor you. We pray we'll have thoughts of you that are pure. We pray that we'll have words... Uh, that we speak of you that are right, that are accurate, that are, that are good, that are honoring of God. 
We pray most of all, Lord, in our lives that we'll show a high view of God by how we live, by living in obedience to your scripture, living righteously as you ask of these uh, priests in Malachi's day. We pray, Lord, that you enable us to do this by your grace, by your power, by your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.